News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you like your reality TV shows to be all about politics, there was nothing more interesting going on yesterday than what was happening down in Washington, D.C. with the resumption of the January 6th hearings. More testimony about what happened that day in the Capitol. For more on that, we're joined now by Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so sum up for us what was happening yesterday. So we had two different uh, lines of thought happening yesterday that the committee tried to tie back to one thing. And essentially what we heard from this committee was this ongoing push from outside advisors that were assisting the president to walk down these avenues with the bogus claims of election fraud, uh, detailing um, a kind of a bananas Oval Office meeting on December 18th with people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani on the phone trying to get the president at the time to use martial law or seize voting machines, both both, um, you know, kind of unconstitutional and illegal in their own rights in order to keep himself in power. And he was being that was being pushed back on by White House counsel. At the same time, the president then took the kind of nonsense that was being fed to him, tweeted out the following day, come to Washington and protest on January 6th. And in that time, members of right wing extremist groups started to gather, converse how they could gather and then start shipping weapons into Washington. So, you know, to kind of TLDR that essentially we had the committee say President Trump's push to gather in Washington galvanized right wing groups and militias around the country. And ultimately, that's what led to the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, trying to draw lines between these extremist groups and the Oval Office. Right. Now, there's a narrative thread, I think, going on here with the testimony and the way the committee is hearing this testimony, Reggie. So what is the story that they are telling? So, look, at the end of the day, we have to remember that these are Republicans that are testifying before this committee, whether they were members of the administration uh, or members uh, of the legal world. These are all Republicans. These are not jilted Democrats. And essentially, the main message here is President Trump was trying to overthrow an election. He was trying to steal a victory away from somebody else that won that election and in doing so, put democracy at risk by not following through with a peaceful transfer of power uh, and that everybody around him now coming out, you know, some will criticize that it's a little too late, uh, that they were trying to tell the president, you lost, you need to deal with it. Uh, and there's a fear that this could be a precedent setter if this is to happen again. If this happens again with another president and they try to hold on to power, what does that do to the stability of America? That's kind of what's at the heart of what's going on right now. Okay, so what kind of impact do you think these hearings are having? Because you're right, the revelations are extraordinary. But what is the result of all this? Well, it depends on what side you're looking at. Democrats are seizing on this and members of the Democratic base are saying, look, we've been telling you about this for the last 18 months, for the last 20 months, uh, that this is what was going on. Some Republicans, if they're tuning in, are simply saying that this is noise being created by the Democratic Party and that this is simply just a continuation uh, of that witch hunt. But ultimately, when you look at the broad picture of this, this is having an impact on politics in the United States. And there is a chance now that members of the Republican Party may see this as politically toxic or politically damaging to keeping Donald Trump at the top of the ticket anytime beyond the midterms because they're still relying on his kind of voice and the power that he has over the base to get through the elections in November. But there could be a real chance here that this maybe sways some Republicans to put somebody else on the ticket in 2024. But that's still a long time off. Okay, let's talk about this meeting that happened, um, you know, on that day in the White House. It's been described as unhinged. 
uh, it was heated, uh, profane some, was some of the testimony, too. Like, this sounds like it was just wacky, This what was going on in the White House. It was it was lunacy what was happening uh, in the White House, because in this meeting, you have somebody like Sidney Powell, who was a lawyer, uh, who President Trump at the time in that meeting was attempting to give the powers of a special counsel. Think of someone like Robert Mueller in the past to investigate election fraud that didn't exist. And this is somebody who was pushing that narrative that, you you know, that, that voting machines should be seized or, or that the president should be able to use whatever powers that he wants and people that push back on him should just be fired and moved out of the way. And and immediately, White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, had to push back and say, you know, she will never get those powers. We will never let that happen. Uh, you know, th- th- it was this this was a meeting that essentially was feeding into the president's belief that that all of these avenues existed, that he would be able to stay in power. And it was that that kind of nonstop drive to the president at the time that fed into his own belief and his own ego that led him to go on Twitter and say, hey, I can stay in power. I just need all of you to come to Washington uh, and protest with me at the U.S. Capitol. That's kind of how this you know, snowflake turned into the avalanche. Oh, boy. OK, so what happens now? So we are going to hear from. Uh, the committee again next week, a primetime hearing. It could be the last hearing. We don't know. There could be, you know, additional hearings scheduled down the line. Next hearing is going to focus on the 187 minutes of inaction when the Capitol was being assaulted and what Donald Trump wasn't doing at the time while he was simply just watching this uh, on TV. That's going to kind of provide the, the last little bit of, of the narrative for the story they're trying to paint. But, Simi, at the same time, a nugget released by Liz Cheney, the ranking Republican yesterday, at the very end of this meeting, saying, that there's now proof that Donald Trump called somebody who has not testified yet in public or behind closed doors that she says is tantamount to witness tampering or witness interference and that that could be referred to the Department of Justice, possibly for a concurrent investigation or a separate investigation. So new little bits of information are being revealed here and there like a little drip drip each time we hear these committee hearings. So Next Thursdays will be prime time. Will that be brought up? We don't know. Will it spark another hearing? We don't know. Will this result in a criminal referral from the committee? We don't know. This really is kind of a sitting at the edge of the seat, watching and waiting to see what happens next. Well, you know what we know, Reggie, is that everybody's going to be watching. That's what we know. Everybody will be watching and, right. and listening here for the recap. They will. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global Washington correspondent, talking about the January 6th hearings. The description of what was going on in the White House that day, that meeting that happened, yeah, unhinged is a good word for it. This is Mornings with Simi. How would you feel about getting on transit, whether it was SkyTrain or getting on a bus and there was a dog there next to you on the bus or on transit? Well, some people would like to make that happen. Let's see how our Raji Sohal feels about that. Hi, Raji. <laughs> Hi, Simi. I want to preface this chat with something very important, and okay. that is the fact that I like dogs. You know I like dogs. I love dogs. I will stop and say hello to all the cute dogs, every single one of them, if I see them on a walk, if I see them while I'm hiking. They're nice to have in your home. They're nice to take in the park and in your neighborhood. But? Sometimes, you know, yes, this is a big but. There's a big but. Sometimes <laughs> you want to transport your dog from point A to B, and you'd like to do it on public transit. And I see people's tiny purse dogs in those little carriers. That's fine. That's fine with me. But this petition that has been signed by thousands of people in Metro Vancouver that say they should be able to take their dog on transit without a carrier, these people are making my blood boil. 
it started out as a simmer, but now it's at the full tilt boil because Raji's raging. Yeah. I want to ask each of these people who signed the petition, why? Like, why should transit allow your pet? I think transit can be inhospitable to humans at times. Certainly, uh, anyone facing mobility issues has had trouble with transit at some point or another. There often aren't any seats on busy routes, and you're left gripping a pole while your body just flails about with all those stops. They're very lurching at times. I'm young-ish, and I do CrossFit, and you know what? I'd like a seat. I would like a seat sometimes on a bus, but I rarely get one. So don't get me started on people. I think we did already, though. I think we did. did get you started. So I see what you're saying here though too is that and I agree with you in that you know we we have enough issues uh, making sure people who have mobility issues or disability issues can use yes. transit safely and effectively. And if people are starting to bring dogs on board like and it's going to be uncomfortable if buses are crowded uh, that's going crowded. to be a pro- they're always crowded. You're right. Now you're going to have to look down and make sure you're not, you know, stepping on somebody's dog. It just it's going to make a difficult situation a little bit more difficult. But people who want this Raji feel very strongly about this. Oh, they want it really badly. And I think that's because a lot of dog owners in this day and age, I don't think it's always been the case, but I think a lot of dog owners feel this sense of entitlement that they have the right to bring their dog wherever they want because they love their dog. Well, your dog is not a human being. Sorry. And there is a hierarchy in this world where human beings are valued more than dogs. Why does transit, why don't they figure out how to make the system more usable for someone in a wheelchair or someone who uses a walker or someone who has any other mobility issues before they start thinking about helping the dogs? And even more importantly, not everybody loves dogs. I had a friend who was out jogging near Olympic Village uh, last year and a dog, not a big dog, not a scary looking dog, randomly came up to her, ran up to her and took a chunk out of her ankle. And it was a legitimately traumatic experience for someone who uh, she used to love dogs. And some people who own dogs uh, assume that everybody should love their dog just because they do. Well, in that way, your dog is like a kid. Not everyone's going to love it. And I think that when I see little kids, for example, getting like bowled over by a, a sloppy, happy dog who's not on their leash, it can be cute. But for a lot of people, that's a traumatic experience. If they've had something in their past with a dog, they are not looking forward to that. I remember once, Simi, I was uh, back when I used to do television, I was wearing a white suit and I took transit to get, get that's, to the oh, station. That's just a bad idea right there, Rachi. What were you thinking? It, yeah, right. <laughs> what was I thinking? And normally I would get changed at the station, but that day I wore my suit. I went down to the station on the bus. There was a dog. I was in a city where dogs were allowed on transit. And that dog uh, just felt like getting all over my trousers. And so I went to air with uh, what oh. looked like... And not a white suit anymore. And you know what? What if it's less, like it's not that big of a deal, but it's like, hey, I don't feel like getting my ankle licked by a stranger's dog on a bus today. Yeah, I hear you. I hear what you're saying there. And you know what? Every email that I have gotten so far this morning uh, agrees with you on that <laughs> issue. Uh, you know, <laughs> Peter Peter wrote to say, I'm against this idea. What about people who have allergies and in some cases, extreme allergies to dogs, etc. And then all of a sudden you're forcing them to be in close quarters with somebody else's dog. Uh, Steve wrote me to say, I'm a dog person, but no dogs on transit, please. Steve said, I use buses a lot. Dogs would be in the way when a bus is busy, possibility of the mess that they might make. Uh, You know what? I think people, they they have strong thoughts on this, right? I haven't had anybody yet who says, I want this to happen. 
Well, I'm sure some of the people in my community would would want this to happen and have signed that petition. People who can't be without their dogs, who might have anxiety issues, need their dog with them. Um, and so I understand that perspective, but I still think that people, human beings should trump dogs in terms of thinking about mobility and getting around the city. And that point about allergies is legitimate. Um, I think people could, in the same way that when you're on an airplane and you don't wear cologne that day that you're going to fly or, or perfume oh, because absolutely. it might irritate the person next to you, people could be more considerate and think about, hey, um, these are my needs, but what are other people's needs? Maybe, um, you know, People don't want to have a spotty and dotty next to them on transit. And just because I think my dog is adorable, other people shouldn't have to. Uh, First of all, I love it when there's an issue like this and you just get to rage because (laughs) raging Raji is my favorite Raji. This is, you know, I love it when you get this worked up about stuff. So you can tell that Raji feels very strongly about this issue. But where do you come in on this? Should transit allow pets on board? Because what is the rule right now with transit, TransLink? It is the pet must be in a fully enclosed carrier, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been reading forums on this issue and some people say, well, my pet doesn't like enclosed carriers. Uh, hello, I don't like a lot of situations that I have to be in. And in terms of transporting yourself from point A to B on a bus, if your dog, say, for example, doesn't love being in that carrier, sorry, figure something else out for, for getting from that point A to B. I don't think the entire world, I don't think all of society, I don't think retail outlets, I don't think businesses should have to cater to dogs more than they cater to human beings. That's all it's about. I agree with you. And you're talking about somebody, I have two dogs, right? I have limits with my two dogs. You have a gorgeous dog. Thank you. Yes. And 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 they're very nice. They're very nice, both of them. And I love them. I also, we have this debate though, when we go places where um, my husband's always like, oh, should we take the dog? I'm like, no, we're not taking the dogs because not everybody wants to have our dogs running around their house. Because some people, when they come over to your house, they'll bring their dog. And you know what? That's fine for me because we've got dogs, but not everybody else wants that. So no. So you're right, Raji. I agree with you on this one. Let's see how everybody feels, okay? Okay, here we go. Uh, here we go. Thank you for that, Raji. <laughs> All right, so should pets be allowed? Should dogs be allowed on transit, not in their carrier? Just allow their owners to bring them on transit. What do you think? Simi at cknw.com. Call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, that is definitely some big economic news this morning where the Bank of Canada increased their interest rate. We knew that was going to happen. We thought it was going to be by 75 basis points. They blew right past that, as Michael Levy just pointed out. They actually increased their interest rate by 100 basis points, bringing their key lending rate to 2.5%. I'm sure there'll be definitely some economic uh, fallout from that. Good thing we're talking to Lori Pankowski coming up later on the show this morning to find out more about it. So stay tuned for that. Right now, we're going to talk about policing in our province. What do you think about the idea of British Columbia having a provincial police force? as opposed to the RCMP being the majority police force in this province. Well, it turns out we are divided on that idea. There's a new survey that came out from BC-based Research Co. that found that British Columbians are pretty much in a statistical tie over this issue. 39% said they're in favour of this, and about 38% said they're opposed. But 
quite a few of us out there, about a quarter of British Columbians, 23%, say we are undecided on that issue. Now, this has been something that people have talked about for a long time in our province, including our next guest right now, Kashi joins us, former Solicitor General of BC, former uh, Chief of the West Vancouver Police Department. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. So you've talked about this for a long time. Does it surprise you that it is still so kind of evenly divided in our province? No, it's been pretty consistent for about the last 23 years with respect to how we police the people here in BC. But what is uh, more surprising here is the fact that you've got people in northern BC that are sitting on the fence right now. Previously, you saw people in northern BC that strongly supported the RCMP. So when we look at a different service model for the province of BC, it's quite consistent. Whether we uh, are able to move on that, that is another uh, area we need to look at. The 25%, the quarter of the province that's unsure, are people, in my opinion, that I've spoken to that really don't understand the uh, subtle differences between the color of the uniform of the police agency. Right. You mentioned Northern BC. What's interesting about this poll, it showed that the cons- this idea of a provincial police force was actually most popular in Northern BC, with 45% of people up there saying they support this. What do you think has happened? What do you think has changed? I think people are looking for police reforms. That's been the large piece of the puzzle many have been advocating for. That's what the government was looking at, how we could implement those police reforms. I think people are not happy, the fact that we're not keeping up with society on what needs to be done, that we need a service that is unique to BC, that meets the needs of all British Columbians, not just a certain specific part of the region. Right. Okay. So in Metro Vancouver, you've got a little bit of a lower number of people, about 40% of people here. I I think in Metro Vancouver, it's a bit of a different issue, isn't it? Because there are municipalities here that have their own police force and they probably have concerns about losing that. Absolutely. We need to look at a model, not a cookie cutter model. We need to look at a model, as I mentioned, that's going to meet the need. So when you look at what we need to do in large, urban, dense populations, you need to look at, in my opinion, a regional style of policing. So when I was advocating this position several years ago, we were looking at the provincial police service where smaller municipalities could contract with that agency. And then you would look at three regional police services, one in Metro Vancouver, one in the capital region in the central Okanagan. That's where you have large pockets of the population of BC. And then what you need to look at is some of those regional services, such as the structures we already have in place. We already have the ECOM structure in place, the Prime BC, which is the records management structure, which is regional, the IIO, the OPCC, and all of those that make a significant difference here, again, for the people of British Columbia. The key aspect, Simi, is to bring that accountability back to British Columbia. Yes, we have three quarters of the province that are placed by the RCMP, but we need that accountability. We need the most efficient, effective, and accountable police service here in BC. Now, you know, there's been a lot of concern in the last, I think, 10, 15 years here in BC about the RCMP. There's been all these high-profile stories. Now we've got, you know, what's going on in Nova Scotia. Do you think at any point, Cash, has the RCMP kind of learned that, you know, any lessons about that, that the public would like them to change a little bit? 
I thought they would have years ago. When you look at the billions of dollars that have been paid out in settlements, when you look at this MASH Casualty Commission, and the fact, the, uh, the argument that's put forward to me all the time is the fact that we have accountability here back to the province of British Columbia. Look at the latest controversy with respect to that on the release of the type of weapons that were used there. It went back to Ottawa and the decision was made in Ottawa. That's what, when you look at the uh, Constitution Act, the police accountability comes back to the province under that Constitution Act, and the province delegates that authority to the municipalities. We need to bring that back here. That's the only way, Simi, we are going to be able to change, because if we're expecting the federal force to police local communities in a community policing style, I'm sorry to say that is not going to happen. So when we're, uh, we have these ongoing issues with the federal force, and there doesn't seem or appear to be any significant changes, such as how we govern that department, we need to act as a province here in British Columbia, because that's our responsibility. Right. And this was something that was recommended, right, recently by that all-party committee that was reviewing uh, BC's Police Act, though. They said, yes, we should be thinking about this BC Police Service, but are we actually making any progress towards this idea? I don't believe so. I believe there's a lot of rhetoric at this particular time. Uh, certainly when that all committee was put together, it was looking at specific issues related to use of force, uh, systemic racism within our police organizations and how we change the culture. Those large pieces that need to be moved, there is no movement on that now. And I think that has to be where municipal governments come on board and say, okay, we've got financial concerns regarding how we place the province. For example, we've we pay $2 billion a year on operating costs here in the province of British Columbia for policing. Never have we audited how we spend that. So when you have a research uh, piece that comes out and talks about divesting in policing and looking at where we are better able to spend some of those dollars and where it would make a difference in the security and safety and protection of people in BC, we need to look at that. Well, listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that. That is Cash Sheed, former Solicitor General here in BC, former Chief of the West Vancouver Police Department. New polls showing that we're pretty evenly split here in British Columbia on the issue of having a provincial police force. Pretty much a statistical tie, but a lot of people undecided, something like 23% of the public. What do you think? Would that be a good idea or not? Should we be moving towards that? Send me at cknw.com and use our buzz line 604-331-289. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on these days with trucks hitting overpasses? We have had three incidents in about the last month. Pretty serious one yesterday that has the 192nd overpass over Highway 1 still partially closed today. That's 24 hours later. Uh, There's a lot of assessments going on right now about that overpass. But yeah, three times in about a month, this seems to keep happening. So now the BC Trucking Association is asking the province for more information on this. They say, listen, we need more transparency when these incidents happen. Let's find out what's going on. Dave Earl joins us now, president of the BC Trucking Association. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. So were you surprised to hear about this latest one? You know, yeah, um, as much as these incidents have happened, they, they've come in a bit of a cluster. They're really quite rare overall when you think about the thousands of these moves that happen every day. Um, when they do happen, they're, they're rare, but boy, they're, they're so serious, we really have to get a handle on what's happening. Okay, so in this particular case, like it looked quite, that it's quite a hole that it took, quite a chunk it took out of that overpass. 
like, how does this happen, Dave? What are the rules for trucks that are going to be going under overpasses? Can you explain that to us? Well, plain and simple, anything that's going to move on a highway, there are given dimensions that it has to be within to be able to move safely. Uh, length and width and, of course, height. Uh, any time that you're actually moving under uh, or through the, any uh, highway infrastructure, you have to plan your route to make sure that how high your, your load is, it, that it can actually move effectively and safely um, through the route that you've chosen. So, I mean, that's the bottom line to me is that it's up to the, the carrier and the driver that's moving it to make sure that they can actually move safely. Okay, so when you see something like that, what happened yesterday, do you get on the phone and start asking some questions? Well, one of the things that we, we look at very first and foremost is to say, you know, what's happened? What's gone on? Can we figure out where the error was made? And this is where we're, we're saying to government, we need more transparency. Uh, we need to hear more about what happens when the investigation uh, comes down uh, and, and the findings are made. We don't know what's caused these accidents. Is it a matter that the equipment was wrong, that the, the excavator wasn't secured properly and the boom moved? Uh, was it that it wasn't measured properly, that it wasn't measured at all, um, that the route was planned improperly, or did the driver just make a simple mistake and choose the wrong road? Um, we just don't know. And that's what we're saying is that each one of these incidents is so unique. We need to take it apart and learn from it. Okay, so how does that happen then? It's like, who gets those answers? Uh, that's the Ministry of Transportation. Uh, when they do their investigations and incident follow-up to see what happened and what went on, uh, that's part of the work that they do. And uh, we just simply don't know enough about these incidents that eventually when we do get um, you know, down the line, we're asking to see those reports to find out actually what's happening. So you don't, so the BC Trucking Association doesn't ever see the end result or the final reports on this? Correct. Correct. Uh, you know, even if they are, even if they are a member, uh, which it doesn't appear that uh, this latest one is at, at, at least, um, we don't see the results. And that's what we're saying is, and it's not just us to me, it's the public as well. I mean, we think everybody has a, a, a need to know uh, what happened, what went on, and what steps are going to be taken to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right. The rules that you mentioned there about having to measure and plan your route and all that, are those just, those have to be self-enforced, Dave? Oh, no. When these are enforced, I mean, the, the compliance is always up to the carrier and the driver. Um, but uh, uh, commercial vehicle safety enforcement has the ability, and, and you see those vehicles out on the road every day, uh, to make sure that these uh, moves are happening in compliance. Um, there's scales, there's officers, there's requirements all over the place, and there's quite a, a long list of enforcement um, activities that are taken to make sure that there is compliance. Um, the other thing, Simi, is there's about 800 and 900 More words on paper aren't going to make it better. Something else is happening, and that's what we're saying. We need to get a handle on to see what's happening. Um, sometimes we you know, may come to an end where we don't really know uh, what happened, but um, you know we can do better by sharing what we do know. What is your sense of the something else that is happening? I mean, is it just that we are so busy right now? There's all these construction projects ramping up. Like, is it is it just a sense of busyness and lots of perhaps new people on the job? I don't know. And I mean, it could be, uh, or it could be just uh, just literally a, a game of numbers. 
um, when you, again, when we look at these, there there are thousands of these moves every day. Um, you know, they're very transient. You and I only see them with it for a moment when we're out there, but they're they're happening all the time. Uh, and is it just a a, a a situation where there's so many so many of these moves happening uh, that we've had three in the past month um, come together? Um, I hate going down that road, though. I, I mean, that's not a satisfactory road just to say, well, you know, it's just a numbers game. It's more than that. There's, there's got to be some level of information, some level of diligence, something that we can learn from these incidents. And, uh, and that's what we're saying. You know, it, it, it's time to really take a closer look at them. Okay, so that you put that message out there to the Ministry of Transportation. Have you heard anything back? Yep, they're very receptive uh, to me. I mean, the ministry is really good to work with. It's just a matter of trying to figure out uh, where the levers are, what needs to happen to be able to have this this messaging uh, come out and and have the information come out. So, um, you know, it certainly wasn't a no. It was, you know, that's that's something we should be doing, and and let's figure out a way to do that. So uh, we look forward to getting the information as uh, the weeks and months tick by. Well, I think you're right. I think the public wants to know too, right? Because it, it impacts the public when this happens. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, these are moving violations. This is something that, that affects the public and, and, you know, really serious incidents that happen. And I mean, yesterday, uh, there were two people that, that appear to be injured. I mean, th- this is extremely serious uh, and we really need to get a handle on it. All right. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Every once in a while, you hear a news story about a prominent individual and their personal journey, and it shocks you. And I think that's what happened this week. Sir Mo Farah, legendary Olympic distance runner star from the United Kingdom, has come forward and shared how he came to that country. As a child of nine, it wasn't as a refugee. It was through human trafficking. Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this story. And Raji, all I could think of was how brave he was to come forward and tell this. Oh, oh my goodness, yes. This story shocked so many people. It's really wild because we know Sir Mo for being this super charismatic, always smiling, crowd favorite, long distance runner. He's won four Olympic gold medals. Britain is so proud of him. And he's also this success story of how someone can get past a very difficult history. People thought it was as a refugee, um, but he wasn't, as you say, a refugee. He was instead uh, trafficked, brought into the country uh, in order to be a, a servant in someone's home where he was made to take care of their children. So he had to dress them, feed them. Uh, he has briefly shared that uh, in a clip from this documentary that's airing on it today in the UK, uh, that he used to lock himself in the bathroom where he was uh, in this house where he was a servant forced to labor and just cry himself uh, there. And he eventually he was allowed to go to school uh, after several years. But at school, he stood out. Out, uh, because he didn't look cared for. And in fact, his PE teacher took note of him and also of how he excelled at track and field. He was just incredible long distance running and running became his means of coping. He confided eventually in this teacher and told the teacher that he was trafficked into Britain. So that teacher, Simi, uh, is the one who helped basically rescue him from the situation. And he was fostered after that by a Somali family And then things took off for him, his life, his achievements, everything took off from there. He became a wild success, got uh, those Olympic golds, was knighted by the queen. 
And then he just kept everything in. So I think that's why this story is such a shock because uh, people find it unbelievable that a child would be trafficked into forced labor like that in Britain. And then it made me wonder, Simi, what kind of trafficking happens in Canada? Uh, the Joyce Smith Foundation is devoted to human trafficking prevention. And they told me that forced labor child trafficking is very uncommon in Canada. But what is common and sadly very common is sex labor trafficking among children. And as in Sir Mo's case, it's actually newcomers often who are new to the country that are the easiest target. Newcomers are a prime target. I've dealt with kids from every foreign country, from Africa, from England, uh, two from Ireland, from um, India, uh, from all the different countries. No one is immune to being trafficked in Canada. If they're young, if they're vulnerable, if they're naive, if they feel isolated, if they're looking for friends that don't know what to look for, they're all vulnerable. But what helps is when parents and the kids themselves know what to look for. If they know, you know, how the perpetrators work. So, Simi, that was Joy Smith from the Joy Smith Foundation talking about how traffickers have an easier time uh, these days uh, with newcomers in terms of booming um, because they are often the easiest target given that they feel socially isolated and they want to fit in. They want to belong. In Canada, traffickers average over $250,000 per child trafficked and exploited. So you can imagine there are thousands of children uh, who have fallen prey here. Oh, I can. Oh, that is terrible. Listen, thank you so much for the story this morning. Thanks, me. That's Raji Sohal talking about the very important story of what Sir Mo Farah has gone through and how it's not just in that country where this could happen, that child trafficking happens everywhere, all over the world.